Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Please open to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. Jonah, chapter 4. This is the word of God. And what we're seeing now is the response of a prophet who had been disobedient to the call of God and witnessed the transforming power of the word of God that he spoke to a very evil people. And those people repented of their sin. And God relented of his wrath. The prophet responds. But it greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents conserving concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So, the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm 
when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? He said, I have good reason to be angry even unto death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? This ends reading the God's word. Father, we pray now by grace, Holy Spirit, that you would enable me communicate the glorious divine truth of scripture to your people this morning and the power of the Holy Spirit and minister to the souls of your people, convict where there needs to be conviction, restore, Lord, communion where there needs to be restored communion, awaken out of the deadness of sin and rebellion, lost sinners and bring them into saving faith this morning through the preaching of your word for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray, amen title of the message, Conflict Between God's Will and Jonah's Feelings. Now, what's said here in this final portion of Jonah is to focus our minds on the ultimate problem. The biggest problem in the book of Jonah is not Nineveh. A ruthless, heartless, brutal people. The Assyrians, as we've studied over the weeks, were brutal. The problem's Jonah, a child of God, a saved sinner. And the central problem for Jonah is what most all of God's children experience at one time or another, and some, the majority of their Christian life, unfortunately. And that is the conflict that rages within many people regarding knowledge of the one true God and his sovereign prerogative and will as revealed through scripture and the feelings within ourselves that conflict with that truth. The conflict with his truth. For instance... Jonah, this is a prophet of God. Jonah knew all too well that the Lord was a gracious, notice, compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. He knew that God was merciful. He knew that God showed compassion upon men who do not deserve it. And who deserves the compassion of God? No one. Who deserves the wrath of God? Everyone. <laughs> And if you think you're good and that you don't, you, my friend, are deceived. 
but by the grace of God, any man be saved. Jonah also knew that God exercised his mercy according to his own mysterious and unsearchable counsel and sovereign will. The only one that has free will is God when it comes to lost sinners. He's the one that sets the will of the sinner free. He knew this, why? Because God divinely revealed this to him long ago through the law of Moses. When Moses was there before God on the mountain, in Exodus 34, it says, the Lord passed him, passed before him, and proclaimed, this is God proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and in truth. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And many times after that divine meeting between God and Moses, he spoke through the prophets that preceded Jonah. Take, for instance, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17. You are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness. The psalmist from which Ryan read from this morning in Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. We could go on and on. Correlating passages of Scripture. So, again and again, we're told that God is long-suffering, He's merciful, He's slow to anger. It's not that He's not a God of anger, because He is. He's just slow in dispensing it because he's compassionate. If you remember, Jonah's flight from the original assignment, go preach my word to Nineveh, was prompted by Jonah's confidence in the word of God. That's why he left. Jonah wanted the barbaric city of Nineveh destroyed, laid bare, consumed by the fire and the wrath of God. That's why he protested. Look at it. That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish, Lord. (laughs) I knew that you're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's why I left in the first place. Another thing that Jonah knew is that Almighty God, according to the Word of God, had promised to be gracious not only to Israel, but to Gentiles, outsiders. I mean, even way back in the time of the patriarchs, he said to Abraham and his seed that all the nations of the earth would be what? Blessed. Who's the seed? Not many seeds, one seed, that seed, Jesus Christ. The seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. So the promise of of the word of God, the truth of scripture, and Jonah's reaction to the scripture is what caused tension in his mind and in his heart. Again, this is a child of God. One of the fundamental problems in the Christian life is the tension and even the conflict between what we know to be the divine, revealed, everlasting, infallible truth of God 
the sovereign will of God, and what we feel within ourselves as our own personal inclination and or desire. For instance, on a number of occasions over the last probably 15 years, I'll have someone come in and sit down with me, uh, a single young man or a single young woman, who are well instructed in the faith. They've grown up in a Christian home, and they know very well what the Bible says about marriage to an unbeliever. (laughs) They know what it says about being yoked together with someone who does not share in a genuine commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. One who does not believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. And the only rule of faith in practice. But nevertheless as they allow their feelings to take over, as they allow their feelings to trump the word of God, that which they know to be true, they begin to break away from what they know, which is the revealed will of God, and they continue to go out with, fall in love with, and marry someone who's not, an, who's not a believer. Tragic. And if you're 5, 10, 15 years this side of a marriage like that, you know the trouble that it brings, amen? Don't shake your head or anything, just, we all know. (laughs) Jonah knew very well from the divine revelation of the word of God that God had promised to be gracious to the Gentiles, Knowing that God was sovereign, knowing that God's grace was free to be distributed as he so determined, and that it's unmerited. Grace. He also knew that Israel's own existence depended on the grace and the mercy and love of God. This is a man of the scripture. This is a prophet of God. But as soon as there was a sign that God might show such mercy to outsiders, specifically Ninevites, those wicked Assyrian people for whom Jonah and the Jews hated, then he had an emotional, a tremendously emotional type of resentment that rised up out of his heart towards God, towards the Lord. So much so that he spoke to God in a most incredibly daring way. We just read it. Imagine. But as he speaks, he speaks from the anger that is resonating in his soul. And it's not against Nineveh per se, as I said. Again, his anger is towards God himself. I believe that this is the source of much misery within the Christian life of the church. One of the greatest problems and dangers we face in our own flesh, on any given day, any one of us, myself included, is to yield our feelings and emotions over against the clear teaching of God's word. Can I get an amen? So, when we, not unlike Jonah, refuse to submit to the will and the purposes of God according to Scripture and lend ourselves or yield ourselves to our emotions, which stir up thinking that is contrary to the Word of God, how is it that God gets through to us? 
according to the scripture, Hebrews 12, 6, it says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he, whom he receives. Chastening. So chastening comes th- through the events providentially controlled by the Lord in and through our daily lives. He brings affliction, perhaps. Tribulation, perhaps. Trial, suffering into our lives, perhaps. Providentially, by divine appointment, in order to awaken, correct, and redirect us because we are his children. And again, for whom he loves, he spanks. He spanks his babies because he loves them. What father among you does not discipline his son? If he does not discipline his son, he hates his son, the scripture says. So there's nothing that happens, beloved, within the Christian's life that is accidental. Things don't just happen in and through your life. Ever. I mean, how many times has God awakened you by way of chastening? If you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you'll say, quite often. It's a wake-up. It's a wake-up to realize what you're doing, living according to feeling rather than to my divine word, my young child, whom I paid the price for. I own you. I bought you. So none of us, beloved, as believers, are an exception to that rule. We, rather, are a manifestation of the rule. That's why the church is so important. That's why preaching the word of God is so important. That's why discipleship and communion and fellowship is so important. You know, God taught this angry prophet the lesson he needed to learn. Being thrown into the sea by the Lord was just the beginning for this brother. It was just the beginning. He got him back on track and he went and preached the word he was supposed to have preached in the first place. And now there's these great results. And now he's a pouting, angry, manipulative prophet. And God brought Jonah to see exactly what he wanted him to see through this remarkable incident, which, by the way, is placed last in the book of Jonah, to leave this in the mind of everyone who's a child just like Jonah is. So many times, as you know, in the study of Scripture, we've studied this over the weeks, when you read Scripture... Things aren't always laid out or recorded in chronological order, okay? And that's specifically what we're looking at here, chapter 4. Oftentimes in Hebrew narrative, the outcome of an event or a situation is mentioned first, and then the explanation or the reason why is given last. So what I believe takes place here is that verses 5 through 11 precede chronologically what takes place in verses 1 through 4. And if you read it that way, it just makes perfect sense. Well, verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 11 are simply two aspects of the same event. You can agree with me or disagree with me. It doesn't really matter. It's two aspects of the same event. It's just that as you see the repentance of the people and you begin in verse 5 and read through 11, you go back and read verses 1 through 4 and it's kind of a summarization of the whole event that just took place. But we're going to look at it as it's laid out this morning, we'll look at verses 1 through 4 first. 
But nevertheless, that which is stated last is stated last because of its central importance. And all you have to do is read it to see that it's central to the whole book of Jonah. And it's verse 11. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals, Jonah? So let's go back to verse 1. Here's Jonah reflecting upon what has occurred in Nineveh. By the unmerited favor of God, these rebels, these haters of God, these haters of Jews have repented and they've turned to God. So how does the prophet respond? What would I, man, if I went and preached and 120,000 people were converted, this is the greatest evangelistic event in history. True conversion, not made up, come forward and say that real true conversion. Transformation. You would rejoice and you would praise God and, and, and proclaim victory for the heralded truth of God, right? But Jonah? No, that's not the case. What we see here is an aggravated, childishly manipulative and even suicidal prophet. So let's look at it together. Jonah's outrage, as outlined in your bulletin, begins with aggravation, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. The literal translation would read like this. But it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned him. It burned him. He was displeased, and this term was displeased. It it translates a Hebrew verb that usually occurs in conjunction with the eyes, like it was displeasing in his eyes, or or it was evil in the eyes of so-and-so. And that which God did in relenting, because they repented, was evil in the eyes of Jonah, and he burned with anger. It's another way of saying that someone thinks something is dead wrong. He became angry. It means to burn or, or, or to kindle. It's a picture of a fire burning within. It's like a furnace. A blaze. So he's angry with God. As I said a few weeks ago, this here, this is the skeleton that lives in the closet of many Christians. A skeleton that's ever so subtle, very much real, nonetheless. And that is that they're angry with God. Many Christians indignant with God. Many people raising their fist to God. Now many of them are masterful at masking it. Especially on Sunday. But deep down they're angry at God and they even rage against Him. Because the God that they know and the God that they serve hasn't always performed in a manner that meets with their approval. Why should I be the one trapped in this miserable marriage? You hear that all the time. Why, God? Why have I been stuck with these looks and this body? Why? Why, God, did my father... Why couldn't you stop my father from deserting us? Why do I have to suffer with this physical ailment? God. In response 
to God's great work in Nineveh, notice verse 1, it. It greatly displeased Jonah. It being their repentance. It being God's relenting from pouring forth wrath upon these people. Now, God is angry with sinners every day, the Bible says. Amen? God is angry every day with unrepentant sinners. His wrath is not only on the sin, but also the sinner. We looked at that last week. It's very clear throughout Scripture. And the the picture of God and his anger against sin and sinners is the idea of a burning anger in his nostrils, like fire. Okay? But here in verse 1, chapter 4... Jonah now has this kind of burning rage within his, within him against the mercy and the compassion of God. So, uh, when God turns his anger away, Jonah's is set ablaze. Fire indignation. Towards and against God. So here we have an aggravated prophet. And now what we see in the next verse is a very manipulative prophet. Attempting to manipulate God. Imagine. But don't think we're far from that, oftentimes. Okay, look at verse 2. One thing Jonah does do is he, he takes this complaint about God to God. He says, he prayed, he prayed. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. So his wrath and displeasure is directed at God. Jonah says in effect here, this is what I suspected you would do. <laughs> so uh, he wants to justify his anger. He, he wants to justify his disobedience in the first place. And, and he tells why now he originally departed. Because of you. That's what Adam did, right? It was the woman you gave me. You started the whole thing. So the, the reason that Jonah is deeply angered here is because he hates the compassionate kindness of God as revealed through the word of God. The plan of God. He doesn't like the plan of God. So fearing that God would show mercy to those he hated, Jonah ran in the opposite direction. He was called to go Northeast, he ends up going southwest, but he didn't make it too far because God appointed a great storm and threw him overboard. So Jonah's really describing God's mercy and compassion according to his word as despicable evil. He's outraged at God. You know, this exemplifies the the proverbial household brat, right? The little bratty child who attempts to manipulate his parents by raging against them. He throws a great fit, a temper tantrum to control the figures of authority in his house. This man is in a huff with God. I told you this would happen. That's why I didn't want to go in the first place. So, in pouting fashion, his prayer shows the marks of what Sinclair Ferguson refers to as spiritual infantile regression. Attempting to control the figure of authority. That's what bratty kids do. That's why that evil needs to be driven out with a rod, as the Bible says. <laughs> when I grew up, when I was growing up as a kid, my, my brother and I ran around with a couple brothers from across the street. 
This kid's name was, it was uh, Jeff, was the younger brother. And we would play around the house, and every time those boys would act up and their mother would address the situation, they would throw a tantrum and a fit. And then usually what would happen is when their father came home, his name, nickname was Dune. And when Dune would arrive at night, the boys would be sent upstairs and they'd be given a spank, and my brother and I would listen and laugh. <laughs> but when their mother couldn't control them, see, my mom didn't have that problem. She just took the belt to us. We didn't have to wait for dad. Sometimes we got both, and hey, you know, whatever. I just visited them. It was just a joy. And those are all good memories to me. Discipline. Not so much at the time, but now just tremendous. Well, what this kid Jeff would do in an attempt to control his mother, every time that she would get on him, he would go to the top of the stairs, two-story house, hold his breath until he passed out. And then do the Gumby bounce down the stairs. And at first, she's in fear, no, Jeff, don't do it. And then it was like, go ahead, go for it. And then she'd catch him and, you know, wake up, spank him, put him in his room. (laughs) And you know what? There's only one thing that's uglier than an out-of-control, little raging, manipulative brat. You know what it is? Parents who allow it to happen. This parent... Almighty God will not not allow for it, beloved. He is certain to discipline those he loves. That's what we see taking place here. He's disciplining, chastening, reasoning with, logically, one of his own. Pouty little children. So, here you have an aggravated prophet, a manipulative prophet, and now you have a euthanasic prophet, as in euthanasia. Right? Euthanasia is the practice of killing or, or permitting the death of, of, of sick or injured, injured individuals. Notice, he says, Therefore now, O Lord, verse 3, take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. This is a man at his worst. Manipulating, an attempt to manipulate God that says, Just kill me, just take me out. Death is better than this. So here you have an aggravated, manipulative, suicidal, if you will, prophet. How does God respond? He responds with probing, comforting, chastening, and correcting his disobedient, angry, little, bratty child. He begins by probing. Notice now, verse 4, God begins to cross-examine Jonah. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? God so graciously says, he so graciously inquires of Jonah, is it right for you to be mad? So God begins to teach now. He's teaching Jonah by asking him one of three questions which we'll look at here in the, la- in the next half hour. And those three c- questions are one key to understanding the climax of the whole book, which we sell- shall see unfold. God's questions, you know what they're always designed to do, beloved? That's why when I preach, I'll raise questions. Because only the Holy Spirit can minister to you, and it comes through the proclamation of the preaching of the word. And that's why a lot of people who proclaim to be Christians who really aren't, or people who don't like the word of God, they run to churches that are entertaining because they don't get and dig into the truth of the word of God. Amen? So it's easy. 
But this is how God works. He begins to teach Jonah by raising questions. You don't think he knows the answers to the questions? He knows the answers. It's not to gain information. It's to pierce the heart. It's to reveal the condition of the heart. This is what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam, where are you? You think he didn't know? Of course he knows. Why are you hiding? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to? To Eve, what is it you've done? What have you done? He asked Cain before he killed his brother, when he was giving an offering to God that was not acceptable, God, why has your countenance fallen, Cain? And then finally, when he killed his brother, he asked, where is your brother? And then he gets cocky with God. Am I my brother's keeper? In Job 38, the Lord says this. I remember that it was the Lord who allowed affliction to this man. Who is it that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Asked the Lord. Brace yourself like a man. That's a manly man talking. That's God. The man who invented man. He is, the, he is almighty God. And then the God man, Jesus Christ, was so masculine, was he not? Jesus is masculine. The Lord asks, I will question you and you shall answer me. The only one that needs to be asking questions around here is me. I created you in my image to bring glory to me. I lowered myself to die for you. Any more questions? (laughs) You see, Jonah's frustrated because Nineveh is not going to be punished. Frustrated because God's going to be true to his revelation as written in the word of God, being kind, being compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He resents this. God's true to his word. Do you have good reason, he asked, to be angry? See, Jonah's problem, you know what it is here, brothers and sisters? And this is often our problem. Jonah is not yet reconciled to the desire and the will of God according to the word of God. This is the reason he's being chastened. I mean, why the animosity? Why the rage against this loving kindness of God that he showed towards Nineveh? Why the conflict between God's divine revelation and Jonah's feelings, which is the same conflict that we deal with? So a little background, a little reminder. Okay, In the Old Testament, God had sovereignly placed his love upon the nation of Israel. He entered into a deep and abiding covenantal relationship with these people. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 reads, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you, Because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. You see, he beset his love upon them. It's nothing they did to earn his love. He just chose sovereignly to set his love upon those people. This is Israel, mine elect, God said. In Isaiah 45, 3, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. 
Why did God choose them? Answer, because he desired to do so for his own purposes according to his own will. Period. End of story. No explanation needed. Amen? That's why. Now, but Israel as a whole perverted the doctrine of election into the distortion of elitism. That's what they did. And by design, God had set them apart as a city set on a hill. By design, God set them apart as an evangelistic lighthouse to the surrounding pagan nations. That through their living relationship with Almighty God and the law that was given to show you that you can't meet it, you can't match it, that the grace of God would be made manifest through them. They, wanted, they were to reflect his glory. But over time, they took on an attitude of racial and religious superiority. That's what they did as a whole. And the result was that the people of Israel became horribly preoccupied with themselves. Very self-righteous. Their witness had all but disappeared. And they began to treat the law of God as an end in and of itself thinking that you can uphold this law. So what did the law become? It became a fence or a barricade to keep the nations out in a way. What this is, beloved, is self-righteous racism. Some of them added laws. They added tradition to that which the Lord has, had established. And eventually they set into order these traditions and these festivals and all these types of things. And, 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 And they said that these are just as inspired, these added laws, some 600 and some laws, are just as inspired as what God has said. That is the very reason, beloved, that the majority of them failed to recognize the one that the law pointed to when he arrived, and that was Jesus Christ. Now, although there were exceptions to the norm, these legalistic Jews attempted to harness and control the compassion of God for themselves. And when Jesus arrived on the scene, revealing the Father as one of compassion for both Jew and Gentile alike, he was despised, he was denied, and he was pursued until they came in cahoots with the political Gentiles of the day whom they hated for the sake of nailing him to the cross. What an irony, amen? Jonah is a recipient of God's grace. Look at what he said back in chapter 2, verse 9. God's chasing him, throws him overboard. He's sinking to the depths of Sheol. He's crying out for the mercy of God. He's sinking. He has seaweed wrapped around his head. And God appointed a fish to deliver that man from the depths of Sheol. And he said, salvation, verse 9, is of the Lord. It's the focus of the whole book of Jonah. The focus, the main focus is the salvation of the Lord. So, Jonah has obvious conflict here between God's grace that extends to Gentiles according to the word of God. And his feelings now are superior at this present time than the word of God in his mind. Dangerous for us. You do not want to go around in life, living life according to the way you feel, beloved. Amen? You do not want to go around 
listening to yourself. Because if you listen to yourself in response to the way you feel, you will very soon be outside of the will of God. What you want to do is take your feelings and test your thinking in light of this which is objective because what you feel and what you think is subjective. We must take this and line it up with this eternal truth of God and either repent and subject ourselves to it or continue on in misery and disobedience. So the rage and anger of Jonah defined here in verses 1 through 4 is what followed... It's kind of a summary of what followed those 40 days that he waited in anticipation for Nineveh to be destroyed as he sat east of the city as described in verses 5 through 11, which we'll look at now. So having experienced the gracious mercy and loving compassion of God, he despises it when he observes it on someone else's behalf, particularly these pagan Gentiles. Have you ever been... You sit around and you wait for God to work in your life in an area in which you have great desire for the glory of God to pursue. And all of a sudden, someone else gets that position or gifted in that area and you're never really recognized in that area, but their giftedness manifests itself in a great way. And deep inside, you resent it. It happens. Or your kid's a rebel. You've raised him in the truth. And someone else's kid comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And you look and you want to rejoice, but you kind of resent it because your kid is still a rebel. God, why can't you do that to my kid? Come on. <laughs> Verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So he likely built some little makeshift hut here, kind of like a little gazebo, private retreat, where he can wait and wring his hands and twiddle his thumbs and look with anticipation, with the hope that fire and brimstone will fall from heaven and destroy Nineveh. And he's up there on a hill somewhere in the midst of a hot and arid desert. So what does God do as he sits in his little hut? God appoints a vine to grow up overnight alongside of his little hut to provide him shade. How does God respond? He begins by probing this man, questioning this man, cross-examining this man, and then he comforts the man. So the Lord God appointed, verse 6, a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely what? Happy about the plant. Not thankful. Not thankful to God, but happy. Not joyful because of the one who provided it, but happy. Happiness has to do with circumstance, happenstance, what's going on, what's happening for me. Happy. Not thankful. So here's Jonah with contempt in his heart, just waiting for fire to fall from heaven. In the, de in the heat of the desert sun, all of a sudden a blessing from God appears and he's exceedingly glad. Isn't life like that sometimes? You're going through life and all of a sudden along comes this great blessing out of nowhere. And you're like, wow, God must be pleased with me. Amen? 
But you don't want to be too sure of that when you're walking in disobedience, rebellion, right? He may not be pleased with you at all. And then behold, the very next day, calamity strikes. Because according to the ordained loving plan of God, now he's going to send affliction. Now first, God appointed this plant. God had earlier appointed a fish. God appointed a storm. Nature obeys God. God appoints a plant. Now the next day, he appoints a worm. Here now we have chastening. From comfort to chastening, verse 7. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. It died. So the very plant that God miraculously provided, he destroys overnight. So by nightfall, it's brown, it's scorched, it's dried, it's good for nothing but to be thrown into the fire. Then you wonder, why isn't God blessing me? And Jonah's up there in the heat of the Scirocco winds scratching his head. So on top of the loss of that blessing for which you're rejoicing yesterday, there comes added affliction. Verse 8, the sun came up. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die. Saying, death is better to me than life. So God sends this mighty Chiraco hot east wind that comes down from the mountains of Iraq. Amen, brothers? Amen. You've been there, you live there, you know. This is kind of like our Santa Ana winds. I used to serve as a uh, chaplain for the Red Cross, and we'd go out and minister to people who just lost their home, consumed by fire. The winds are blowing at 60 miles an hour. You have no chance to stop any fire at that point. God appoints a wind like this. Sun beating down on this man's head. So, you know, when the Chiraco winds come, you take cover. If you are able, you go and you find shelter. But Jonah had no shelter, with the exception of perhaps going back down to Nineveh inside their city walls. He wasn't about to do that. So the same man who experienced blessing the day before now experiences, by God's providence, his displeasure to teach the servant of God a lesson. No different than any one of us. Why? Because those for whom he loves, he chastens. Because there was one chastened ultimately who bore the wrath of the Father. It was Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, he bore the wrath of the Father once and for all and forever for you. On your behalf, he shed his blood, appeasing the wrath of God. That's propitiation. He died laid down his life. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And if you're in Christ, you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. If you're outside of Christ, you stand in judgment already and the wrath of God is upon you now. Come to Christ. Repent. Believe in the gospel, Jesus said. Repent. Believe in the gospel and you shall be saved. These people of Nineveh repented. They believed in God. Not about God. They believed into God. That's grace. The wrath that we deserve was placed upon the Son and He was crushed, bruised for our iniquities. 
So this man is basically suffering from sunstroke. <laughs> so God inquires again. He cross-examines his prophet. His own child who's in the throes of discipline here. He says, verse 9, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? He said, I have good reason to be angry even unto death. I'm sure he said it with that kind of attitude too. Then the Lord said, look at the compassion of God. Talk about long-suffering and merciful. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, in which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight, and it perished overnight. You see, such questions, beloved, come to us when we're operating outside of the will of God. That's why preaching from the Word of God is so important. You ever notice when I preach, I'll raise questions? Hey, you ever thought about, or have you ever experienced, or have you ever done this, or so on and so forth? See, the Holy Spirit then goes to work. You just stick to the Word of God, preacher, and the Spirit of God will minister to the hearts of God's people and convict the lost. And sometimes, you know what His Word does? It places people and leaves them in their hardness and their resentment against God. Not only does it transform, but it also hardens people in their unbelief as they sit there and resist and resist and resist. Kind of like Romans 1. God turns the sinner over to themselves. He just leaves them there alone. Remember this. Although Jonah is outside of the will of God here, beloved, Jonah's outside of the will of God, but he is not. Because he's a child of God, he is not outside of the love of God. And if you're truly a believer and you're outside of the will of God, you may be outside of his will, you may be chastened, but you're not outside of his love. That's why he chastens. You do not want him to leave you alone. God bless you. You're welcome. So Jonah responds, I have reason to be angry unto death. A word that means unto ruin. In other words, to be damned. Angry. That's how he's talking to God. That's, that's what it says. God says this, Jonah, you had pity on a vine that you did not work for. You did not plant it. You did not cultivate it. You did not work. You did not tend to it. You did nothing. You did not water it. When God brought comfort, he rejoiced, not in God, but in the plant. Oh God, just give me this job. Just give me the position. The job comes, the position comes. Then you end up worshiping the position. The job. Let me exercise this talent that you've given me. And eventually, you become successful. Fellowship ceases. Don't need to go to church no more. And you worship your talent. Becomes an idol, amen? It happens often. So as quickly as God provided it, he takes it away as a living and dying lesson to his beloved prophet. Then comes the punchline to his question. Verse 11. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference. They're blind 
between their right and left hand, as well, Jonah, as well as many animals. So what do we have here? First of all, when God says you had compassion on a plant, he uses a word that means a flowing or a weeping of the eyes. You were so happy with the plant that when it was gone, you had pity on the plant. You actually had deep, heartfelt compassion for a plant. And notice what the Lord does. He moves now into logical reasoning. And he brings up an argumentation from the lesser to the greater. So God refers now to an unspoken scale of value. He compares plant life with human life. Human life is of utmost value. Animal life, of lower value, of inferior value. Plant life, lowest value. Jonah had pity on the lowest form of life, but it made him feel good in his sin. I'm amazed at how many people talk to plants. And you know what? Forget plants. How many people are so in love with their pets? Hey, I have a dog. I love my dog. Don't get me wrong. But I heard a story of a preacher. He was walking his young daughter. And there was a fence, and it was covered with vines. And he heard a young lady talking behind the fence. Oh, my sweetheart, I love you so much. And he's thinking, man, this, this lady here must, she must be getting ready to be married to this man or whatnot, or it's her husband. I better take my daughter across the street. We no sooner to be across the street, the lady comes around the corner, and she's holding a little lap dog in her arm. She's talking to a dog. Now, that's ridiculous. And don't get me wrong, we all love to talk to our dog. Oh, come here, puppy. I'm talking about PETA kind of people who say that animals are equal to human beings. Wrong. Wrong. Dead wrong. Don't you, ever, don't you dare ever think it. God, Jonah, if you had pity on a plant, not an, on a plant, not an animal, should I not have compassion on a people who are the highest life form? And you're having pity over the lowest life form? And these people can't distinguish their right hand from their left? They're, they were on the road to hell? Or at least, at least, Jonah, many animals who would have been destroyed in Nineveh as well. And you're tripping over a plant. Jesus said this in Matthew 6. Look at the birds of the air. Look at them. They do not sow, nor, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet, do they not sow, rather, and do they not reap into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them? Are you not worth much more than they? That's what Jesus said, if you think you're equal to animals, or animals are equal to us. Nobody here thinks that, I know. But you see, Jonah's knowledge of God, Jonah's knowledge of his word, conflicted with his feelings and his desires at a moment to where he wasn't even thinking correctly about plant life versus human life. He was all messed up. You know who Jonah represents in Scripture? The elder brother in the prodigal son. The elder brother in the prodigal son. The younger brother goes off and he asks for that which will be, he will inherit, which is basically to say, Dad, I just, I wish you were dead. 
I wish you were out of my life. His father gives him, he goes, he spends it, he lives a foolish life in waste and want, and he finally comes to the end of himself. He's so hungry, if he could digest pods that swine eat, he would eat them, but he can't. He thinks about home. He said, my servants, better treatment than this. He goes home broken, repentant. His father the whole time has been looking for him. But in that day, for a son to go like that, you just sign him off as dead. And there he is. And the father runs to him. And he embraces him. They come back. Fatted calf, barbecue, party, sandals on his feet, robe on his back, ring on his finger, rejoicing. And then the older brother hears what's going on. And he asks the servant, what's going on? He tells him. The older son says, he became angry. He wasn't willing to go in. His father came out pleading for him to come in. But he answered and said, look, for many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours. I uphold the law, basically. And yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son, when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the catted calf for him. But the father answered, he said, son, you've always been here with me and what's mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and we had to rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And now the story just ends. And about three or four years ago, I heard John MacArthur preach this text. Most striking sermon to this day that I've ever heard. He goes, the story just ends. He goes, I would love to write the end of the story. And if I could, I'd write it like this. And the elder brother bowed down in broken repentance, just like the younger brother, and grabbed his father's feet and says, oh, father, I'm so wrong. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the way I'd like to write the story. But MacArthur went on to say, let me tell you how it did end. The elder son was outraged at his father. So much so that he picked up a piece of lumber and he beat his father to death in front of everyone. And there was just as much silent with 3,500 pastors then as there is now. Because the elder son represented the Pharisees who were murderous, murderously angry at the intent and the purposes of the word of God, Jesus Christ. And they would murder him. Who has the right or reason to be angry with the intent and purposes of God? Anyone? When we attempt to trump God's word with our feelings, we insult, beloved. We insult his righteousness. Remember, Abraham was promised a son, and through that son would come many descendants that would outnumber the stars of heaven, that would outnumber the sands of the sea, but he got tired of waiting on God. He didn't like God's plan, so he went and slept with his wife's maidservant and had a son named Ishmael. And God said, look, you need to separate yourself. You need to excommunicate yourself from Ishmael. 
Would that be difficult for a parent? Very. Very. But you must do so because you are rebelling against the messianic promise that I have authored, says God, and which is going to be carried out through this other son, Isaac, according to the word of God. King David. You remember his son Absalom attempted to usurp the authority of his father to take the kingdom out from underneath him, a very evil son. And God caused that son to die in his rebellion. And David, as a father, he cried out in 2 Samuel 18, he says, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Any parent can sympathize with those feelings. He was probably so grieved because he knew his son was in hell. But Joab was right when he confronted David. Joab confronted David and he says, David, king, are you going to weep for that worthless son of yours who was your enemy? Rather than for those loyal subjects that placed their lives on the line for you? And you know what that did? That awakened David to reality. And to the purpose and the will of God, he washed his face, he took his throne, and he received the people. You see, beloved, if you go by your feelings, contrary to the word of God, you insult, we insult the righteousness of God. That's exactly what David was doing. That was exactly what Jonah was doing. God's plan from eternity past was to save Gentiles. This great act in saving Nineveh was simply foreshadowing the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came in John chapter 10, what did he say? I have other sheep which are not of this fold, the fold of Israel. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice. They will become one flock with how many shepherds? One shepherd. How many waves of salvation? One. One. One covenant of grace that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. God's written plan. We see the consummation of it all in Revelation chapter 7. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. They cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the central problem for Jonah is oftentimes the innermost problem of me, oftentimes the problem of most of us, and that is the conflict between God's word and our feelings in coming to terms with the sovereignty of God, period. So as Christians, we must submit to the revelation of God as declared in the word of God. Is this the conflict that rages in your mind this morning, beloved? Is this the conflict of your heart? What you know to be true, conflicting with how you feel. And this can, can occur in many areas of life. From a lack of holy living, to fulfill carnal desires, because that's what I feel, that's what I want, to a resistance of those difficult doctrines of the Bible that teach of God's sovereignty in all things, including salvation, and they're difficult, and you don't feel that it's fair. May we be graced to learn what Jonah learned, beloved. And we need grace. 
You know why? And I conclude with this. There's only one man in the history of the world that ever mastered the ability to overcome every temptation that gives way to feelings instead of the word of God. Just one. And that is the word of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the personification of Psalm 40, verse 8, which reads, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. He did it for you. He did it for you. He did it on your behalf. And he always subordinated his feelings to the perfect and revealed will of God, who said, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but what? Thy will be done. And you know what? We, we who are his children, saved by grace, we're in his family. Okay? Two more verses. When Jesus was teaching in a home, and the house was filled with people, and you couldn't even get inside, his mother Mary was at the door outside along with, with the brothers of Jesus, the half-brothers of Jesus, and someone said, Master, your mother and brothers are outside. He didn't say, oh, whoa. Let mama in. No. He looked around at those who were pressed in upon him upon, in, within that house. He looked at them. He stretched out his arm and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Granting us divine revelation. That's what he's done. You see, friends, he's granted us the ability to read this and say, I understand. Because the cross is foolishness to those that are what? Perishing. Is it foolishness to you? Not if you're in Christ, it's not. Is the word of God foolishness to you? Not if you're in Christ, it's not. Never. Jesus sent out, 70 disciples, he sent them out two by two. They went out preaching the gospel. They went out being able to sign, perform signs, miracles, and wonders. Demons were subject to those disciples in the name of Christ, and they came back rejoicing. They said, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And this is what Jesus said, don't rejoice in this. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written where? In heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. Jesus rejoiced. And notice what he said. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and so no one knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son. And here it is, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Who reveals God to sinners? He does. According to his sovereign will. So the the imparting of divine revelation, enabling sinners to believe, is according to God's sovereign prerogative, as the word declares. Rejoice in that, beloved. You have been enabled to obey. You have the Holy Spirit. And we need grace, do we not? May God grant us the grace to have the mind of Christ that cries out saying, 
Nevertheless, by grace, my Lord, not my will, but thine be done. And we'll be able to subject ourselves to what is truth rather than how we feel if our feelings don't line up with the truth. Amen? May the Lord bless you richly. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you again for the glorious words of truth, the living scriptures which have set us free, that are no longer foolishness to us. The veil has been lifted, enabling us not only to see, but to believe, to understand, and to receive the glorious grace of you, Almighty God, your compassion and your kindness and your long-suffering as revealed through your Son who bore the wrath on the cross in our place, bearing the shame that is due to each one of us. So may we, as paid-for children of the Most High, by grace, do your will according to the written word, not being swayed by our feelings or the way that we think when it's contrary to the word of God. Bless your people today, I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.